Welcome to Season 3 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. More history, more people, more of the stuff that got you here in the first place. Thanks for listening. One, two, three, jump! Hey guys, welcome finally, finally to the premiere episode of season three of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I am Kyle, as of yet your host. Welcome to another season, uh, a year later, a year and some change later than the the premiere episode number one of this podcast. I am happy to be here, happy to be doing this still after all this time i know i talk uh i i always say that i'd like to save my bullshit for the prequel episodes so that i don't bog down the actual content episodes with my stuff but since it's a special occasion in the first episode of the uh the new season i figured i would just uh chat talk a little bit before we get started on what we're doing and to be completely honest i didn't think i would ever make it to this point ever I, I really didn't think that I would even make, you know, 10, 15 episodes that I that I would run out of steam or I would run out of uh, uh, inspiration or, or what have you by, you know, episode eight and be like, well, I guess it was a good run. Good for me. I did something Bye. somehow one plus year later, we're still cranking out episodes and we are getting pretty close to 50 of those episodes. And my plan is to make at least. 50 more episodes after this one, and then we're going to see kind of how we're doing and where we're at. So, plenty of content coming up in the future. Guys, I am excited to be here with you again on the premiere of the third season of the show. This season, uh, nothing too crazy or special that we're going to be be doing in, in relative terms. Um, I think a lot of it is going to be along the same lines as the second season with a little bit of a dash of the first season thrown in there. And of course, when people are available to come over to my place, I will record some episodes with, with other people, other people being someone else. And we'll either tell a story to them and they can react to it, or they can tell me a story and I can react to it, or we can just chit chat about something. I don't really care, but that's coming up this season as well. But Unfortunately, today that is not going on. Today you're just going to get a classic old historical story about a historical figure today. So uh, I guess sit back and relax and enjoy uh, the premiere episode of this season. Uh, uh, the season three, episode number one, we're going to talk about Captain James Cook, the sailor. And uh, towards the end of the story, we are going to loop it back and and put it into context with what we will be doing for the next episode of the podcast. So without further ado, let's just skip all the bullshit I just talked about. Thanks for tuning in. By the way, I really appreciate those who are still here. 
Um, if you are still here, go tell your friends and family and others about the show if they like history and they want to hear something about history. You just want to hear a story about something interesting. Let them know about it, and I, I, I'd be glad to continue doing that if that's all that goes on. We'll, we'll get to more of that shit at the end of the episode. Like I said, without further ado, let's talk about British sailor and captain of the high seas, James Cook. Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, guys. Stick with me. Alright guys, so Captain James Cook, born on the 7th of November of 1728, and we'll talk about his death a little bit later, was a British explorer, navigator, cartographer, a guy who makes maps, and a captain in the Royal Navy, the Royal Navy being the British Navy, of course. Uh, James Cook is one of those guys that isn't quite thought of in the same sense as guys like, you know, uh, uh, Ferdinand Magellan, and I hate to say his name, but Christopher Columbus and others like that. Names that typically come up to the top of your head when you think about people who explore. Captain Cook, Captain James Cook, is not a person who really comes to mind. And that because that's because he's part of this sort of new age of exploration. You know, the original age of exploration, when we're talking about it from uh, the largely Western and British point of view, is uh, exploration from basically the very end of the 1400s up into, you know, into the 1500s up to the 1600s. So that about 120 or so year span, uh, we all of us typically think of as the the main, you know, era of, of, of exploration, you know, going to, quote unquote, the new world, that sort of thing. Uh, James Cook, obviously born in 1728, could not have possibly been part of that entire thing. He is part of more of a new age of explorer that took place during the 18th century where at this point everybody was getting a little bit better at making maps, um, going places that really hadn't been gone before in uh, really just kind of taming the last vestiges of the world in, in these terms, finding places that hadn't been found before even though they're you know, they had been found in all technicality because pretty much everywhere Captain Cook and others went, there were people, minus one place that we'll talk about in a second. Um, but for the most part, there are already people there. But you know, from the from the, the European or the, uh, the Western point of view, um, these places had not been uh, as such discovered, quote unquote, yet. And Cook was part of the new class, so to speak, of explorers that worked and found a bunch of more places. And when we talk about the end of James Cook's life, we were we we're going to segue that into what I'm going to talk about next week. But first, I just want to talk about what Captain Cook accomplished and 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 how he did it, what he did and how respected of a man for the most part he became. And so let's go back to the, the beginning real quick and see how uh, exactly Captain Cook 
got started in the entire deal. He was born, as we said, on the 7th of November of 1728 in the village of Martin in Yorkshire. And uh, at this point, he had really, you know, he was growing up. He had no real sense of the sea. He was a little bit inland. In 1745, when he was 16 years old, uh, Cook moved 20 miles to the fishing village of uh, Stathes to be apprenticed as a shop boy to grocer and haberdasher, a person who makes hats, uh, a man named William Sanderson. Um, at this point, this is when Captain Cook sort of caught the fever, so to speak, of the sea. Because now he was uh, in a fishing village, he would go to work, and he would just see the ocean, and he would be like, man, I think I just want to be out there doing something out there. Uh, after 18 months, uh, uh, it didn't really work out for him in the haberdashery. Uh, Cook then traveled to the nearby port town of Whitby, and there he was introduced to a friend of the Sandersons, a people named John and Henry Walker. Uh, the Walkers, who were Quakers, were prominent local shop owners in the coal trade. Um, at this point, Cook got himself a job uh, in, in the Merchant Navy. So he, he he's going into it in sort of the mercantile arm of shipping. Because, you know, if you're out shipping, you can be on the sea for a number of reasons. Um, you can be on the sea militarily. Uh, if you're a part of the military in the Navy, you can be on the sea exploring. Or you could be on the sea uh, uh, in, the, in the mercantile sector, selling, shipping, uh, purchasing, what have you. So he gets his start in the Merchant Navy. Um sailing ships up and down uh, the English coast, moving the coal that the Walker family was, you know, uh, in charge of. So he he does this, and as a part of his apprenticeship doing this, he applied himself very hard and learned very well algebra and geometry and trigonometry, uh, sea navigation and astronomy, all stuff that he would eventually obviously use to be in command and uh, effectively navigate ships of his own in the future. Uh, after his three-year apprenticeship was done with the coal company, uh, Captain Cook then began working on trading ships in the Baltic Sea, so he moved uh, into Europe to the east a little bit. Um, he hung out there, did what he did there, um, progressed through the merchant ranks, um, and eventually got a, a, aboard a bigger ship called the Friendship. In 1755, within a month of being offered command of that vessel, so he was working hard trying to get, you know, his own command because he wanted to be in charge of a ship. In 1755, he then just said, fuck it, and volunteered for service in the Royal Navy when the British were arming themselves up for what would become the Seven Years' War, or if you listen to my American uh, Revolution podcast uh, the end of the last season, the French and Indian War, as it was known over in the uh, the, the colonies at the time. Um it sucks because he had to basically start all over again at the bottom of the barrel rank-wise, but he knew that if he worked hard in the military that he would be able to continue to you know, reapply himself, rise through the ranks quickly, and end up getting a better command when it was all said and done. So he entered the military service on the 17th of June in 1755. Cook's first posting was with the HMS, Her Majesty's Ship, or His Majesty's Ship, depending on who was in, uh, the monarch in charge of Britain at the time, the HMS Eagle, serving as an able seaman and master's mate 
under Captain Joseph Hamar for his first year or so aboard, and then Captain uh, Hugh Palliser thereafter. Now, you'll have to excuse me because I, I, I sort of just caught myself in a little thing. I've been calling him Captain Cook this entire time. He, at this point, is not a captain in his his own right. He is a, a part of the Navy, um, but he does not have command quite yet of his ships. I just think it's a cool name, Captain Cook. Just rolls off the tongue, so you'll have to excuse me. In October and November of 1755, so just a few months after he entered the Royal Navy, he took part in the Eagles' capture of one French warship and the sinking of another, following which he was promoted to boatswain. And in addition to his other duties, this was a humongous promotion very quickly along the line. He then gained a temporary command, temporary being the, uh, the, the working term, in the next year, March of 1756, when he was briefly the commander of the cruiser, a small cutter attached to the Eagle while on patrol. So he was already showing these glimpses of, of the ability to command a ship, and he was given command of this small little cutter boat that would go along with the HMS Eagle while they were on patrol. This is a good thing for him because everybody's basically realizing, hey, this guy knows his shit. He should definitely be in charge of these ships. Eventually, Cook found his way across the pond, so to speak, and served uh, in the sort of northeastern Canadian portion of the Seven Years slash French and Indian War, where he took uh, temporary command as well of the HMS Pembroke. Um, him and other of that crew took part in a major amphibious assault that captured the uh, the fortress of Louisbourg from the French in 1758, and he also participated in the siege of Quebec City in 1759. Now, during this time, during this time, he demonstrated this humongous talent for surveying and cartography, like we were talking about people who make maps and people who survey the land, and he himself, along with his crew, was responsible for mapping much of the entrance of the gigantic St. Lawrence River that runs into like Hudson Bay and others into Canada during that siege, which allowed uh, the British forces to actually make effective attacks uh, against the, the, the French opponents during this time. His surveying ability was so goddamn highly revered that in seventeen in the in, in the later seventeen hundreds he had made these um these these super intricately deca- detailed maps of Newfoundland, which is like we said up in northeast uh, uh, Canada. And these maps, like I'll include a picture on the Facebook page once the episode is uploaded, um, are super detailed. Like for um, it's amazing. It's it's absolutely amazing how t- how many tiny little things are present on this map. I mean, it's it's about as good as you're ever going to do if you're not using basically satellite technology and GPS to find anything. Like, it is an amazingly detailed map. It shocks me how good this sort of thing was back in the 18th century, so much so that his his map of Newfoundland was used for over 200 years. That's insane how fast technology moves. His map was so goddamn good that it was used for over 200 years after he had had it published. And this is when the travel bug sort of hit James Cook. At this point, he knew that he wanted to go around and find new stuff and explore and and, and do 
all of the interesting things that he wanted to do when he first got, you know, uh, uh, the, the lure of the sea in his blood. And so the, the focus of James Cook's career turns from military-based to exploration-based. In 1766, the Admiralty of the Navy engaged Cook to command a scientific voyage into the Pacific Ocean. The purpose of this voyage was, at the, that point, to observe and record the transit of Venus across the sun. So you would look at the sun with a specialized you know, sort of instrument. Um, if you want to talk about looking at the sun, go way the hell back to the beginning of this podcast. About a year ago, I did a, a, a podcast on eclipses. Very interesting, notwithstanding. This uh, voyage was to record the transit of Venus across the sun for the benefit of the Royal Society uh, uh, inquiry into a means of determining longitude on Earth. Now, sailors had a pretty decent idea of how latitude and longitude were on Earth at this time, but there was no real good exact way in science to, to really pin down, you know, uh, in, in exact, you know, however many degrees of longitude, however many degrees of latitude you were sailing. So at this point, they're like, hey, go to the South Pacific where you can see Venus very clearly, make transit across the sun. You're going to go do that there. Uh, 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 and we have, by the way, a sweet, sweet secret mission for you after you're all done. And Cook's like, oh, okay, I can do this. So literally, he has his ship, and inside of his ship, the HMS Endeavor, there is like a sealed box that it's like open when you're done with part one of your adventure. So he's like, ooh, I'm in a little like fun, you know, sort of I don't know what I'm doing sort of adventure. So he's promoted to lieutenant, which grants him sufficient status to take a command. He then is in command of uh, the HMS Endeavor, and they depart from England on the 26th of August in 1768. His crew then goes across the Atlantic Ocean, um, down the east coast of South America, and round Cape Horn, which is the bottom of South America, and continue westward across the Pacific Ocean, eventually arriving in Tahiti on the 13th of April of 1769, where they were going to make their observations of the Venus transit. In the end, though, the result of the observations were not as conclusive or accurate as, as had been hoped. Once the observations were completed, Cook then goes and gets that sealed box and opens it up to see what his next adventure is going to be with his additional instructions for the second part of his voyage. And these were to, quote, search the South Pacific for signs of the postulated rich southern continent of Terra Australis. Now, the, the northern hemisphere was at this point pretty well known uh, 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 what's going on, where stuff is, what's happening. Uh, the Southern Hemisphere, on the other hand, you had a pretty good idea, obviously, of like Africa, because Africa had been sailed around plenty of times at this point. You also had a pretty decent idea of South America, as it had also been sailed around at this point. But there's a large, glaring gap in the knowledge of the world at this time, and this was basically the 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 huge open blight of, of the, the South Pacific Ocean. Like, what's all here? Is there another massive continent, just like the New World was to us many years ago, you know, North and South America? What if there's another humongous continent just sitting out here that we can sail to and we can do this whole exploration thing, you know, completely and, and, and utterly all over again? So his new secret mission, or I guess it's not a secret anymore, but his, his new mission was to search for the 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 rumored Terra Australis continent. This is sort of a 
a, a, a sort of a same rumor as, you know, something like Atlantis or something like that. You know, something that's unknown, but everybody sort of thinks it exists. So you should definitely go and look for it. He then sails and runs into New Zealand, which he is the first uh, European man to bump into New Zealand, where he maps the entire coastline, discovering, hey, this place is big, but it's not a humongous continent. It's just a couple of big old islands, a lot like, you know, uh, uh, um, Great Britain and Ireland, you know, there's in, in this way, instead of an east-west island uh, makeup, it's a north-south island makeup. Okay, cool. That's great. Let's 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 pop a flag here, call it good, and then keep going. He then voyages west, reaching the southeastern coast of what would become Australia, or known as Australia, on the 19th of April, a year later in 1770. And in doing so, his expedition became the first recorded Europeans to have encountered that place's eastern coastline. Uh, a few days later, on the 23rd of April, he made his first recorded direct observation of indigenous Australians uh, or, you know, aboriginal people that you might see today um, at Brush Island near Bali Point, noting in his journal, quote, and were so near the shore as to distinguish several people upon the sea beach, they appeared to be of a very dark or black color, but whether this was the real color of their skins or the clothes they might have uh, uh, on, I know not, unquote. Then on the 29th of April, Cook and his crew made their first landfall on the mainland of the continent at a place now known as the Cornell Peninsula. Cook had originally christened, christened this excuse me, as Stingray Bay, but he later crossed this out on his map and named it the Botany Bay. Uh, for Star Trek fans, that is Khan's uh, 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 ship that he flies off of Earth in an alternate timeline and escapes uh, uh, with the rest of his superhumans later to be discovered by James T. Kirk in the middle of nowhere. There's some fun for you, you fucking nerds. Back to the story. Um, he called this place the Botany Bay uh, after the unique specimens retrieved by the botanist he had uh, brought along in his journey, uh, Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander. Um, it is here that he finally made first contact with Abor the aboriginal tribes that he had seen. He then departed the Botany Bay and continued northwards. He stopped at Bustard Bay, known now as 1770, um, on the 23rd of May of 1770. Um, on 24th of May, the next day, um, they went ashore, continuing north. Uh, on the 11th of June, a mishap occurred when the HMS Endeavor ran aground on a shoal of the Great Barrier Reef. We know that thing is now just, you know, this gigantic thing off the east coast of, of Australia. And then nursed into a river mouth on the 18th of June of 1770. The ship was very badly damaged and his voyage had to be delayed by nearly two months while repairs were carried out on the beach near the docks of what would become Cooktown, named after our man uh, Cook, in Queensland at the mouth of the Endeavor River, named after his ship. Eventually, when the ship was repaired, they continued sailing through the Torres Strait, and on the 22nd of August, uh, Cook landed on Possession Island, which he, where he claimed the entire coastline that he had just explored as now flag in the ground British territory. He then went back to England, um, uh, up past uh, Indonesia and Jakarta, you know, kind of going that way around Africa and back to um, England in that direction, going, hey, cool, we made it all the way around the world 
in, in an interesting little circumnavigational thing. So in the interlude, because he's going to make a couple of more big old journeys, in the interlude, he goes and publishes a bunch of journals of his travels, and they become extremely uh, extremely popular, especially among the scientific community. He becomes sort of a, a folk hero, sort of legend hero, you know, type of guy. Like, this is a guy who's like a modern-day sailor, explorer. Look at this guy just going out there and just finding shit that we never knew existed. Hey, that's great. That's wonderful. Look at this guy. So, when you have great success like that, you often get um, commissioned to do all of that stuff all over again. Uh, he was promoted in August of 1771 to the rank of commander, and in 1772, he was then commissioned, as we talked about, to lead another scientific expedition on behalf of the same Royal Society to continue to search for the hypothetical Terra Australis. Now, you can hear in the word Terra Australis, oh, that sounds like Australia. It's, you know, that is no coincidence, but when you look up, especially when you're you're researching on what those people thought of Terra Australis, they didn't have what you know what Australia is in mind. They had more of a like gigantic continent that would be huge, like North America and South America in mind. But Australia eventually was the thing that took that the namesake of Terra Australis. Anyhow, back to his journey, um, people still think that this Terra Australis must exist. It, it, there, is, there is plenty of evidence to the contrary, saying, hey, you know, we found a lot of these, these big islands, and honestly, Australia, which is, is fairly big on its own, is basically continental in size, which, you know, to this day, Australia is considered a, a, a continent of its own. People say, now, you know, Australia, it's big, whatever. They, we're really looking for this humongous continent. It has to be somewhere. So Cook, go back and try to find this place. So he takes command of now the HMS Resolution on this voyage, while uh, another man named Tobias Ferno commanded its companionship in this, uh, this journey called the HMS Adventure. Cook's ex expedition circumnavigated the globe at an extreme southern latitude, so real close to the uh, Antarctic Circle, in fact, becoming one of the very first to cross the Antarctic Circle on the 17th of January of 1773. In this Antarctic fog that was all around him, uh, Furno then made his way to New Zealand where he lost some of his men uh, during an encounter with the native Maori tribes and eventually himself, not with Captain Cook, sailed back to Britain because he was like, fuck this, I'm out of this, where, um, where Commander Cook at this time continued to explore the Antarctic region, reaching as far south as 71 degrees and 10 seconds south on the 31st of January in 1774. Cook almost encountered mainland Antarctica, but turned towards Tahiti at that point to go back up and resupply his ship before he were to do any of that sort of thing. He then resumed his southward course in a second, but ultimately fruitless attempt to find the supposed continent. On this leg of the voyage, he brought a young Tahitian named Omai, who proved to be somewhat less knowledgeable about the Pacific than the Tupai that had been on the first voyage. And on his return voyage to New Zealand in 1774, Cook landed at the Friendly Islands, Easter Island, Norfolk Island, New Caledonia, and Vanuatu, just, you know, looking up and mapping all of these different places. Before returning to England on a less uh, fruitful, I guess, adventure 
than he had the first time around. Cook made a final sweep across the South Pacific from Cape Horn and surveyed, mapped, and took possession of uh, for Britain of an island called South Georgia, which had uh, been explored about a century earlier, but he made a more detailed map of, of this entire uh, region here. He also discovered the Clerk Rocks, and he also discovered the South Sandwich Islands. Um, he then turned north to South Africa. At this point, he's making his way back up to England and eventually did make it back to England. Um, his reports basically return after he returned home, finally put to rest the popular myth of Terra Australia. So nobody, everybody's like, okay, you know, in the end, Terra Australia must not exist. You went super fucking far south. It was really cold, super foggy. You know, there's just, I mean, unbeknownst to them, they didn't actually hit mainland Antarctica, which, you know, is another thing. But in, in terms of this idea of this new gigantic southern continent, that wasn't going to be it. I mean, Antarctica has nothing but arid, icy, snow-blown nothingness on it. You know, there are penguins and there are a couple things in the north, the very northern type of, you know, areas of, of Antarctica or the coastal areas. But as you go inland, it's just like, oh, fuck it. There's nothing here. There's just... There's the South Pole, and then there's just just miles and miles and miles of nothing. And today, Antarctica is extremely desolate and difficult to get to. You can only imagine back at this point where everybody's just like, "Fuck that! We're not even gonna. We're not even gonna to try this." Cook's second voyage did mark, though, a successful employment of the Larkham Kindle K1 copy of John Harrison's Marine Chronometer, something to um. Uh, tell you time on the ocean blue, which enabled Cook to calculate his longitudinal position with much, much greater accuracy than he did with the Venus transit on the first voyage. He returned then, you know, to England with to, to much praise. You know, he was he was very well thought of even after the second journey that wasn't quite as you know, overall successful as his first one, and he was uh, promoted to the rank of post captain and given an honorary retirement retirement, excuse me, from the Royal Navy, um, with a posting as an officer of the Greenwich Hospital. He accepted this reluctantly, also saying, "Hey, if something fucking cool comes up, guys, I'm gonna take that fucking cool post and I'm gonna do it. You can retire my ass, kind of, but I am not gonna stay that way. If something awesome happens or something." interesting comes up and I can be a part of it I want to be a part of it now think of it now it's 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 only at this point the mid 1770s um cook was only born in 1728 so the dude is like barely 50 years old now I mean he is a young dude still relatively you know he's he's in good health in good shape and he wants to continue doing what he's going to do so at this point he's like well you can sort of retire my ass but in the end, I want to do something when it's time to do something. And so Cook begins his third voyage, his third commissioned voyage, this time um, in search of a Northwest Passage. Now, a Northwest Patches, uh, Passage uh, refers to a passage um, over basically Canada, you know, skirting the North Pole kind of area, like some sort of either inland uh, river passageway or some sort of like undiscovered ocean passageway with, you know, navigable waters. 
over the top of there, then you'd come down and you'd be able to sail to like you know the 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 west, like um, into into Japan and China, all these other places that you normally. Uh, uh, we'd either have to sail all the way around uh, the bottom of Africa, you know, up the coast, past India and whatnot to get up to it, or you'd have to sail all the way across the Atlantic, all the way underneath South America like James Cook had been doing, and then go all the way across the Pacific Ocean just to get to what you wanted to get to. A Northwest Passage would alleviate this because, as we know from the Columbus episode, what Columbus didn't know that people, you know, eventually discovered is that there's two gigantic continents in the middle of, you know, the distance between the Atlantic Ocean continents and Pacific Ocean, where it's like, well, if we didn't have these continents, we could just sail straight west and get to where we wanted to go. But we can't do this time because these things are just in the way. We need to find a Northwest Passage. So Cook is commissioned to uh, basically go and see if he can't find a way to, to do that. So Cook takes command of the HMS Resolution, while Captain Charles Clerk, uh, another guy who is going to be commanding a ship with him, takes command of the HMS Discovery. Um, they, they basically go the same way, you know, down South America, around Cape Horn, and then head upward, northbound, to try to find, you know, uh, this Northwest Passage. They do stop in Tahiti, for a little while and then continue their voyage north. In 1778, he runs into Hawaii. Hawaii had never had any European white guy contact before, so he becomes the first European to stumble into the Hawaiian Islands, which he names the Sandwich Islands after the fourth Earl of Sandwich. And he goes there, says, hey, cool, look at this place. It's this nice little island in the North Pacific. What's going on? There's people here. Hey, guys, what's up? And they're like, hey, white dude, how's it going, man? Uh, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, nothing, just stopping here on my way to, to do whatever. Bye. So he leaves uh, what he calls the Sandwich Islands and sails north and then northeast to then explore the the, the west coast of the United States, uh, North America, you know, Canada, the entire area over there where he then runs into the Oregon, what would become, you know, later on in time, the the Oregon coast at approximately 44 degrees north latitude, naming his landing point Cape Foul Weather in a very descriptive term because he ran into foul weather when he ran into it there. He had to, you know, hang out there for a while while the weather cleared and then headed up the coast, uh, the west coast of North America and mapped it all the way out there. Um, he continued up, continued up. He ran into Alaska and then down, you know, uh, the, the southern coast of Alaska and then eventually around the west coast of Alaska where he would head through the Bering Strait. At this point, he had figured out, hey, this is kind of where, like, Russia comes, you know, to a point in the eastern section and North America comes to a western point in its section. It's right here. I'm going to go around Alaska and see what I can do. So he goes up the Bering Strait, which is in between Alaska and Russia, and continues to go uh, 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 you know, north and then back east, thinking that if he goes all the way uh, you know, to the north side of Alaska and continues to sail down that way, he may run into this fabled Northwest Passage and make his way basically across the continent in whatever way you would, you would suspect. And then, you know, hopefully, in their terms, in their vision, 
pop out on the east coast of North America and be able to sail across the Atlantic to England and say, hey, cool, guys, look what I did. Give me a bunch of fucking money and fame because I found the Northwest Passage. We're all rich. It's going to be awesome. Instead, he goes up the Bering Strait over the um, northern coast of Alaska and, of course, runs into a whole bunch of sea ice and can't go any farther. It's just, you know, it's the, the Arctic Sea. There's really just a lot of frozen sea there, not really a very navigable way. He is frustrated, but he understands that he has to turn back. Um, he does make it as far north as 70 degrees in 44 minutes. So at this point, Cook has been as far north as 70 degrees and as far south as 71 degrees. Uh, it, it, this guy has basically all but touched the, the, the southern and northernmost points that people have ever been in the world at the time. And basically... I mean, he touched everything from east to west because he had circumnavigated the globe. So this guy had literally been everywhere during his journey. He then goes back down, goes around the Siberian coast, and then southeast down the Siberian coast to this to the Bering Strait. He's frustrated, but he knows he has to head back. He picks up a stomach ailment, they're saying at this point. He becomes increasingly frustrated on this voyage and becomes a little bit uh, uh, crazy in the head. Uh, apparently forcing his men to eat walrus meat. Uh, none of them wanted to eat walrus meat because they all thought it was inedible, but he was just like, you're going to do it. I'm, I guess, crazy now. Anyhow, he goes back down to Hawaii at this point, going, oh, I'm going to go back to the, you know, as he calls them, the Sandwich Islands, and I'm going to go and and resupply, get ready for my voyage, and head, you know, wherever I'm going to head. Cook returns then to Hawaii in 1779, after sailing around the archipelago for about eight weeks, he made landfall uh, on the big island of Hawaii. So if you look at a map of Hawaii, Hawaii Island is the, the biggest and southernmost island. And Cook's arrival coincided um, with the Hawaiian Harvest Festival, which was going on at the time for the worship of the Polynesian god Lono. Coincidentally, the form of Cook's ship, the HMS Resolution, or more particularly its mast formation, you know, above the ship where the sails are, um, resembled a certain significant artifact that formed part of the season of worship, according to the Hawaiians. Similarly, Cook's clockwise route around the islands before making landfall resembled the processions that took place in a clockwise direction around the island during the Lono Festival itself. It has been argued most extensively by Marshall Solins, a historian, that such coincidences, coincidences excuse me, were the reason for Cook's uh, initial... Um, deification, you know, kind of like, oh, look at these these people arriving. They're like gods, you know, uh, uh, by some Hawaiians who treated Cook basically as a as a as a second coming of this god they were worshiping, the god Lono. Uh, this view was suggested by members of Cook's, of Cook's crew, knowing that this has happened in the past, where where European ships have landed places and natives have have considered them, you know, gods at some point. Um, it, there's really not as much broad evidence that suggests that they were like getting on their knees and worshiping, you know, James Cook as a god. But there are arguments also to be made that maybe there was, you know, you you if you've never run into these type of people on these insane sailing ships before, maybe you would think, hey, what the fuck is going on? Who are these people? Are they the gods that we're worshiping during our festival? So he links landfall. And after a month's stay, uh, Cook attempts to resume his exploration of the Northern Pacific. Shortly after leaving the Hawaiian island, however, 
the resolution, the HMS resolution, his ship, its foremast, the one in front, broke, so the ships had to return to the bay to make some repairs again. So he's hanging out for a month saying, all right, guys, cool, I got to go. I got to go uh, continue my ship, my journey, goodbye. Oops, my ship's fucking broke. I got to come back and fix it. During the fixing portion, tensions then rose between the Europeans of the ships and the Hawaiians of the island, and a number of, of fights and quarrels and little skirmishes broke out between the two. An unknown group of Hawaiians then went to one of Cook's ships and stole one of his small boats. The evening when that cutter was taken, the people had become, quote-unquote, insolent, even with threats to fire upon the Europeans under Cook's command. Cook then attempted to say, well, fuck it. If they're going to take my boat, I'm going to take their king. At this point, Hawaii is a, a kingdom, a, a sort of certain monarchy sort of situation. So uh, Captain Cook then attempts to kidnap and then subsequently ransom the king of Hawaii, uh, Kalaniopu. Uh, I hope I said that right. Hawaiian words shouldn't be that hard because they don't have as many uh, consonants and vowels as you know uh, uh, as the English language. But I look at it and I'm like, oh, I can't. Um, the following day, on Valentine's Day of 1779, Cook then marches through the village, going, "I'm gonna find that fucking king. He's coming with me." Cook finds him, takes the king by his own hand. He literally grabs the guy and leads him willingly away. One of that guy's favorite wives and two chiefs approach the group as they're heading back to their boats. They plead with him not to go. Don't go. Don't let this guy take you. Um, an old kahuna or a priest begins to chant rapidly while holding out a coconut, I guess, an attempt to distract Cook as his men and a large crowd, a mob, basically be begin to form at the shore. The king then goes, oh, shit, this guy's not, like, going to do anything nice to me. He's actually a bad guy. He's my enemy. So the king is like, fuck Captain Cook. I'm out of here. As Cook's is like, okay, whatever. I'm out, too. I'm, I'm going to leave. Cook turns his back to the ship to help launch the boats. He is then struck in the head by the villagers and then stabbed to death as he fell on his face in the, stir in the surf. Excuse me. So Cook does all this stuff for his life. And at the very end of it, lands in Hawaii, gets in trouble with the Native Hawaiians, and is subsequently killed by them. This is the end, the, the, the inauspicious end in 1779 of Captain Cook's journey in sailing and, I guess, also in life. Uh, a few more of his uh, people are killed as well before they eventually do escape from, you know, this, 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 this massive sort of, of skirmish in the end, um, Cook did leave, as you know, before his death, he did leave uh, quite a bit of, of, of legacy because he went so many places. Um, Cook's 12 years of sailing around the Pacific Ocean contributed a great deal to European knowledge of the area, like we talked about. Several islands, such as the Sandwich Islands, you know, known as Hawaii, were encountered for the first time by Europeans, and his more accurate navigational charting of large areas of the Pacific was an extremely major achievement. He, uh, to create accurate maps, latitude and longitude had to be accurately determined, and he helped do this with his first and second voyage, uh, uh, where, you know, everywhere that he did eventually go. 
Um, he, Cook succeeded in circumnavigating the world on his first voyage without ever losing a single man to scurvy. Scurvy was a huge issue, especially with sailing men, because they didn't really understand what fought scurvy off. This was an, an unusual and, and weird accomplishment at the time. Um, during so, he, he tested several preventative measures, um, but the most important was frequent replenishment of fresh food and, you know, probably by accident figured out, hey, if I just get a bunch of vitamin C in me, scurvy isn't going to happen. So this, this, this frequent, you know, getting fresh food not only let his men eat better in, in the overall term, but also not eat like old rotten shitty food that a wasn't going to give you the uh, nutrition needed and b was rotten and full of disease anyhow so so cook somehow miraculously was also an extremely good ship's captain when it came to uh looking after the well-being of his crew um in new zealand they often view the coming of captain cook as the beginning of white european colonization of the new zealand island australia is a very similar sort of situation um, the two botanists that he brought along that we talked about before, Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander, uh, went with him on his first voyage and collected over 3,000 plant species um, in that, you know, Botany Bay area. And uh, Joseph Banks himself subsequently strongly promoted the British settlement of Australia. And, of course, that sort of ended up happening. Uh, British people sending their prisoners at first to Australia as a penal colony and eventually being like, oh, this place is kind of nice. We should just all live here. And now, you know, as we know, Australia is part of the British Commonwealth. Uh, yeah, so so basically Cook is this insane navigator. He goes literally everywhere in the world, you know, finds all these different places, goes as far south as Antarctica almost, and as far north as the, you know, Arctic Circle, and basically everywhere in between. He runs into Hawaii, which at that point was an unknown to 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 the European powers, and unfortunately meets his untimely death on the Hawaiian islands as he gets pissed off and tries to kidnap and ransom the Hawaiian king at the time. Doesn't quite work out for him, and... That is where we're going to to sort of segue from this episode uh, that will basically end at this point after we've, you know, talked uh, at length about Captain Cook and is going to segue into next week's episode in which we'll talk about the Kingdom of Hawaii. That is the Kingdom of Hawaii that existed, obviously, before the United States had anything to do with Hawaii. Now that James Cook had discovered this place existed in a really nice little spot right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, a lot of people started to have their eyes pointed and set at these wonderful little islands named Hawaii, and it would lead to a lot of other sort of, you know, skirmishes and upsetness and a lot of ridiculous nonsense uh, uh, for the next 100, you know, 200 plus years or so. So that is what we'll talk about next week. But I just I've always liked James Cook's story. It's a very interesting story. He he went a lot of places, saw a lot of things, and died in a weird way, um, kind of mirroring uh, Ferdinand Magellan, uh, in in a, a man who you know was responsible for his crew basically circumnavigating the world. Uh, Magellan also died kind of in that South Pacific area on islands to natives, you know, as well before his journey was complete. James Cook is murdered on Hawaii, and that set out, sets off sort of this 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 colonizing view of the Hawaiian Islands, which will lead us into our next episode. And guys, that is that is all that is all there is 
to this episode. Thank you so much for joining me on the premiere episode of Season 3 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. You can find this show on any podcast um, app that you want. iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, all the good ones. It's everywhere. Check out the new artwork uh, that I had done by me, by uh, the wonderful artist Carissa Bettendorf. Uh, drew me a new logo for the show. That'll be showing up uh, uh, in your iTunes as the artwork now for the show. And I will also put it on the Facebook page and everywhere else that you can see it. It's a lovely drawing of, of, of a microphone on a couch sitting next to me, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Nellie Bly all hanging out on the couch. It's really cool. You should check that out. Um, you can rate the show when you look at it on Apple Podcasts. That really, really helps the show out if you rate it. Um, I started a Patreon page. I talked about it in the prequel episode before. Patreon.com slash Kyle has a podcast. Go check that out. Contribute a buck a month if you want to or even more if you're feeling super squirrely. And I will get you whatever the 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 prize is or the 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 gift that you get for contributing to the show. It helps out a lot, no matter how much you do. Go check that out. The actual website of the show will be up sooner rather than later. I hope not quite ready yet, but that doesn't stop the show from going on. You can find us on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. That's me at the Couch Pod. That's the show on Facebook. Search Knowledge for the Couch Podcast, and you can find it there as well guys that is all i have for this week um tune in for the next episode where we talk about the kingdom of hawaii guys as i always say be nice to each other and live long and, and, and prosper <laughs>